Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. My guest today was an anonymous Broadway influencer on social media with the Twitter handle at BroadwayGirlNYC. Then she revealed her identity on a Broadway TED Talk, and it changed everything. Welcome, Laura Haywood. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Laura Haywood. Laura is a multifaceted host, consultant, performer, and pundit. Her formerly anonymous alter ego at Broadway Girl NYC is widely regarded as a leading advocate, ambassador, and best friend to Broadway. Forbes has called her the most vocal and visible supporter in the business. She has worked in fields ranging from sports talk radio to social media consulting and created the first a cappella radio show as well. She now works regularly as a celebrity interviewer for outlets including AOL's Build Series and CBS New York 
And she's also the creator of the new web series that I happen to love, The Between the Show Shows. She was part of the Dove campaign for Real Beauty. She thinks of herself as a professional enthusiast. Welcome, Laura, to the podcast. Thank you so much. So we should share with everyone that... We're in love. We're in love. (laughs) You just never know when love's going to hit. You don't know. This is it. In all honesty, though, aside from being in love, Laura and I met on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the word is. There are show romances. What would we call a Twitter romance? Twitter-mance? A Twitter-mance. And I had been following her because if you love Broadway and if you love people who are smart and funny and give new points of views that you haven't already had yourself, Laura's Twitter was a feed that was really fun for me to follow. And slowly, we started talking to each other. And before we knew it, we were sitting at a table across from each other in a restaurant. That's when we put a ring on it. Yeah. In a way, it was pretty quick. But I also feel like I'm still relatively new to social media and Twitter and had been given so many friends kindly talking to me about the dangers of putting yourself out there Mm -hmm. on social media. But so far, I have met the most extraordinary people. And the idea that you are now sitting here in my podcast booth and we're getting married, which is really (laughs) crazy, is kind of amazing. And this is much more your world. You're someone whose personality went from being anonymous and just a Twitter handle. Yeah, just a Twitter handle. And I I had a little cartoon avatar that looked like a Disney princess. And she had black hair. And when I did my reveal and I'm a blonde, people were like, you don't have black hair. That that, that cartoon didn't even look like you. And I was like, yeah, that was the point. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not Princess Jasmine, actually, at all. Well, the thing that's really cool about Laura's story, you've reinvented yourself many times for someone so young. Oh, well, thank you. The idea that you kind of have found all of these niches and worlds that I feel like just as things were kind of happening or forming or birthing, you were right there. Like, Sirius Radio, okay. Like, all these different places. Acapella, what is that? I don't know. I'll have an entire... You know, radio program about it. Now everyone will know. I believe you were a sports caster. I don't yeah. know if you knew a lot about the San Francisco Giants before talking about them on air. No, I mean, well, I grew up loving baseball and I grew up in Oakland, California, which is right across the bay from San Francisco. I was a big Oakland A's fan when okay. I was a kid. I even went to the famous A's Giants World Series game when the big earthquake hit in 1989. So I was there for that crucial event that everybody in the Bay Area remembers. I was working in radio after coming out of college and doing that as like my main hobby. Um, I was studying theater, but sort of taught myself radio in college. And one of the first jobs that I got was just picking up the phone for a sports talk morning show. And it was on the San Francisco Giants network and uh, their flagship station. Um, And the woman who they had hired to do news and weather wasn't working out. And so they asked me if I could just fill in for a couple weeks while they found somebody more experienced. They did end up finding somebody about six weeks later. But by then, I was like holding my own 22 years old, sassy, talking back to these sort of conservative men my dad's age and just like not having any of their anything. Yeah. Yeah. And and bringing a whole new perspective to this morning radio show. So I learned about the team and the sport and sort of the culture of 
I mean, we used to call it locker room talk, right. but mm, that's not a term we like anymore. No. But it was not just sports. It was more of the culture of the sports fan. Uh, but I ended up working out at the ballpark with the Giants for pre- and post-game broadcasts and working, doing some freelance with NFL. And I really got into sports while I was working there. And I still say I bleed orange and black, which are the Giants' colors. I don't really follow sports that closely anymore, but I have so much love for the teams and the organizations that I worked with while I was working with them. Was that the first time you had a job where your fandom and your passion came together and became a paycheck? Well, it was like my first job out of college, but I wouldn't say that I ever said I'm going to go make money off of fandom. First of all, fandom was not a word that I understood. I always was clear that my enthusiasm was a little bit off the charts. I would get obsessive about things. And I think that it's not necessarily that I got into something before it was a thing, like with acapella music, but it was like as soon as I found it and knew I liked it, I went all in. Yeah. And so my voice was just louder earlier on, whereas other people might dip their toe into something new. Right. I was never afraid to throw all my eggs in one basket with something new. So like the acapella radio show I created when I was in college, and I did it because I grew up listening to LPs of my dad singing with his college acapella group, and my sister and I were both in groups in high school and college, and... Um, I made a friend who was in a group, a professional acapella group in San Francisco, who sent me 15 CDs of professional acapella groups when I left for college because I said, I want to do an acapella radio show. And uh, it turned out there were only a couple of all vocal radio shows in the country. This was before automation, certainly long before uh, any internet radio existed. But there was this group called Rockapella that if you're the right age, right around like mid to late 30s now... When we, were, when we were in elementary school, there was a TV show on PBS, I think, called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And Rockapella was like the group, the mascots. They did the theme song. They did sketch comedy on the show. And they were still really popular a few years later when I was in college. They sold out the Seattle Opera House. And they were like, is there anyone who knows acapella in the broadcasting world in, in Seattle? And I went to school just outside of Seattle. And the same friend, Deke Sharon, he did all the orchestrations for... In Transit, the first acapella musical on Broadway, he's worked on Pitch Perfect. But at the time, he was like a singer and arranger in the Bay Area. And he, I guess he gave them my information. And I ended up at 19 years old on stage for a sold-out crowd at the Seattle Opera House introducing this, you know, massively popular group. And I really think that if social media had existed then, I would have been called acapella girl, mm -hmm. not Broadway girl, because my enthusiasm was just as strong. And it just happened that my broadcasting platform, which was a you know, 25-watt college radio station that only played to five blocks away, was much smaller than the broadcasting mechanism that I had when I created Broadway Girl, which was infinite. Right. So it lasted and it built. And it's my love for Broadway has really expanded along with my social media following. Those two things have really fed each other. Did you grow up listening to Broadway cast albums and going to see a lot of Broadway musicals? Was that part of your family's tradition? Certainly musicals were a big part of my family life. But I was pretty ignorant when it came to Broadway. My grandmother did a lot of community theater. She played all of the sort of operatic soprano parts that Kelly O'Hara plays now. You know, I saw her in South Pacific and Sound of Music. 
she and I always watched the Tonys together. In fact, I totally remember watching the Charlie Brown performance on the Tonys with my grandma. That's so awesome. And even though she has 10 plus grandchildren, the Tonys were something she and I did every year, just the two of us. That is so wonderful. Um, and then I also grew up with a little community theater that did three musicals a year every summer. And I'd always go see those. But when it came to what I understood of Broadway, there were only two musicals, Les Mis mm-hmm. and Phantom of the Opera. That's not true? Uh, wait, wait, there there are more? There are more than that, yeah. <laughs> um, I had a cassette of Les Mis right. that it was the first time I remember ever being... Uh, it was the first time I ever remember crying from emotion. Not an emotion like I'm sad or I'm scared or, you know, like I want my mommy, but like something was so beautiful. I cried. It was a little fall of rain. I remember exactly where I was in the family room of my parents' house when I cried from something being so beautiful. And for my 10th birthday, I got tickets to see Les Mis in San Francisco. And that was maybe the most magical thing, maybe to this day, the most magical thing I've ever seen. When I love something, I love it hard. And that that happens with people, too, as you can see, like, from our intro. Yeah. Like, I met you, and I, I'm i now as obsessed with you as I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become Ilana Levine girl NYC on Twitter Could and, and just, you? like, stalk you hard. That yeah, would be, so. I think, a great thing? Yeah. No, it wouldn't be. I'm going to not do that. <laughs> I'm going to not do that. Let's but keep it more. I will never miss an episode of your podcast. That's for sure. Oh, well, I really appreciate that. So when I moved to New York, I was actually recruited to work for a new channel that Sirius was about to launch. This was before Sirius and XM merged. Um, one of the first corporate partnerships that Sirius had was with Maxim Magazine. And a producer that I had met freelancing for the NFL during my sports talk radio days remembered me. And they were looking for someone who could sort of simultaneously be one of the guys and also kind of the cute girl next door. So they wanted someone who was experienced, but also within the Maxim demo. So anyway, I moved to New York not knowing anyone. A friend of my sister's took me out to dinner one of my first nights in town. But other than that, everyone I met was in the sort of guy culture world of men's magazines. And this was in 2005, right when Maxim was at the height of its influence. Uh, And it was really a great journalistic force in addition to having the girly magazine pictures. They were doing exposés on prisoner life and stuff like that. In any case, I was 25 years old. I thought I'm never going to have a chance to move across the country and work in New York City. And, you know, there was nothing holding me back. Why not? If I don't like it, I'll move back to San Francisco where I never thought I'd leave. And so I decided to give it a shot. But like I said, I was not super plugged into what Broadway was about. When I got there, I think the big shows were Wicked, Avenue Q, uh, Spamalot, the producers, all within the Mm -hmm. first few years that that I came. I saw Avenue Q within like a week of arriving. But after that, it just seemed so expensive. It was like a special occasion kind of thing. And I had no information about lotteries or... TDF memberships. Yeah, nothing. I had mean... Like, in the meantime, I had fallen deeply in love with Rent. So I knew I wanted to go see Rent, um, which I did also soon after I arrived. But the tickets just were prohibitively expensive. It wasn't until 2006 when Spring Awakening original production launched at the Eugene O'Neill... And a friend that I had met who I gave – somebody I gave a free ticket to an indie rock show to, someone I barely knew, who repaid the favor by inviting me to a preview performance of this 
Broadway show based on a So it wasn't play. at the Atlantic Theater anymore. It no. had moved. It had moved to Broadway. And all I knew was it was a it was based on a play from the 1800s in Germany. And I was like, that sounds terrible. No wonder he's giving me a free ticket. But it's a block from my house and it's on Broadway and it's free. So yeah, I'll go. I'll check it out. If I don't like it, I'll leave it intermission. Oh my gosh. We were in the front row, center mezzanine, my favorite seat in the house. And I remember turning to him at intermission and going, I think maybe this is amazing. And the next day I bought tickets to see it again. And um, MySpace was just coming into vogue at this time. This is how dated this story is. And Spring Awakening was one of the first shows that had a fan group on on MySpace that the producers actually had someone inside the production contributing to this online group. So I found out about the fan club, the email list that gave um, advanced ticket sales to people who had a certain code. And they were selling onstage seating for $25. So every time that email came out, once a month, I would buy tickets. So I ended up seeing that show 18 times. So you were in that show. I basically was yeah. in that show because yeah. I was sitting next to cast members. You know, I don't I don't know if you remember, but they had cast members sitting totally. in plain Remy clothes Zakin in the and, audience. And totally, yeah. of course. And yeah. Jenna Ushkowitz yeah. and uh, Krista Rodriguez, all of these people. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I sat next to Jen Damiano on her 16th birthday on stage at Spring Awakening. That's and wild. I definitely could have jumped up and done the choreography. And probably most people in the audience wouldn't have known that I wasn't in the show because I was the same age as the actors and right. I was doing all the same moves and we were all in modern dress. But I learned through people I met there about other shows that I should see and other discount codes and stuff like that. So I got to being obsessed with Broadway in its modern notion and in its sure. current lineup in 2006. And I realized that with the exception of the few people that I had met on this MySpace group, I didn't really have anyone to geek out with about theater in my real life. My friends at the radio station and at the magazine were like not into it. They would be like, would that that person be a good guest for the show? Like, what would she look like in a bikini sure. kind of stuff? Yeah. And, you know, they were interested in the producers and spam a lot because those were dude kind of humor. But I just didn't have an outlet for wanting to talk about, you know, how many alphabas you'd seen and stuff like that. And then when Twitter came out, I just finished reading this book that was written by an anonymous blogger in the restaurant industry who started off by wanting to kind of give a behind the scenes look at what it was like for the restaurant staff. The book was called Waiter Rant, and it was based on a blog of the same name. And it was supposed to be like, here's what happens when the health inspector comes, here's what we really think of your small tip, all this other stuff. But it turned into this storytelling mechanism where it was like which hostess was having an affair with which bartender. and and But he never s- gave any specifics about where the restaurant was, what they served, or anything. He told you just enough to make... Me, when I went to fancy business lunches, I'd always be like, is this it? Is that the waiter? Is this, you know, I better tip well just in case he blogs about me. Um, And there was something about that anonymity that made it really accessible. And it made it much more magical. It made me feel like part of it. It wasn't a tell-all. It wasn't just some random dude's random friends. It was like these stories were about everyone. And I thought, man, somebody should do that for Broadway. And so I thought I would write a blog. And I actually did start a Broadway Girl blog that I worked on for about a year. And I created a Twitter account to promote the blog. But 
I didn't anticipate Twitter becoming what it was. And the funniest part about it for me is the timing and what I had been doing. My currency as a broadcaster was in the witty one-liner. And I would say something that packed a punch. I knew if I was going to open up my mic, I better have something smart, informative, funny, and brief to say. So I started doing that in 2002, very beginning of 2002. And I was often working more than one job at a time, driving from city to city or doing one show at night on one radio station and another show in the morning and a third show on the weekend. So I basically built up about 10 years of experience within four years. And that was my 10,000 hours. hours. But I thought that would make me a great radio host. And, you know, to pat myself on the back a little bit, I think it does make me a good radio host. What I didn't anticipate was that this brand new format would be invented that was made for the person who could put it in 140 characters. Yeah. Yeah. And so I ended up having experience at something that very few people in the world ever had experienced because it hadn't even existed. I'd had training for a sport that hadn't been invented yet. And so when Twitter launched, and I didn't even realize this till after the reveal, which was six years later, but I'm convinced that's why it was good because I knew to use it. I instinctively knew to use it as a broadcasting medium. And it was a hit. So when was the moment that Broadway Girl NYC exploded? When did you catch fire as a Twitter influencer? There are a couple of moments that stand out. The first, when I was like, my first inkling was an email went out from the Rock of Ages marketing team, and they had organized the first of its kind, an event called a Tweet Up, where they invited everyone who followed Rock of Ages on Twitter to join them for cocktails and drinks. And the invite that they emailed out to their whole email list said, maybe you'll even meet Broadway Girl NYC in person. What? And that was when I realized that the anonymous thing actually might have some value. I'd done it just because I was following in the footsteps of the Waiter Rant author, and I thought it was kind of fun. But I also never thought anyone would be trying to figure out who I was or that anyone would really care. I thought it was more like a writing tool. Do you know who that was? I do. Okay. Yeah, his name's Jim Glaub, and he worked for Sereno Coin, and now he's based over in London. But we're very good friends, and I totally give him credit for – he was really on the forefront of social media marketing because – It's hard to remember, but when all of these formats started, all of these social media began, they weren't considered marketing tools. They were considered microblogs. They were for keeping in touch with your friends. And most marketing teams didn't know how to use them or even that you should. There were like 20 Broadway actors who had Twitter accounts when I started, and I was friends with all of them, and we would go back and forth and discuss. Now it's like if you have a brand, you better have a Twitter account. But at the time, it was just kind of something that it was like having a Facebook status and only your friends would see it. And uh, so Jim Glaub and the Serena Coin team and Rock of Ages were really on top of like, oh, this is a new kind of audience tool. And we, you know, like let's ply them with booze and, and hors d'oeuvres and like they will they will feel like the show Rock of Ages belongs to them. Right. And, and they it, will help spread the word yeah, for exactly. free. I've always also considered myself an audience advocate. And I believe that the whole theater industry would be better if producers could think of audience members as collaborators instead of customers. Uh-huh. And remember that theater without an audience doesn't exist. It's right. just a rehearsal. That's right. And so, like, stop treating people like dollar signs and start treating them like your scene partner. And 
once someone has a sense of ownership over the show, you get excited about it in a different way. You know, I think about like a just as, this is a little sidebar, but I think about couple retired couple in middle America who plans a once in a lifetime trip to New York. And it happens that there's a teenage girl who lives across the street from them who loves Wicked, who dresses up as Elphaba for Halloween every right. year and listens to the music and wears the T-shirts. When that couple comes to New York, they're going to go, oh, we should go see Julie's show. Yeah. And they think of it as belonging to her, even though she's a kid in middle America who may never even get to see the show herself. But they think it belongs to her because she believes that it belongs to her and she projects her enthusiasm about it as if it belongs to her. And and so this Rock of Ages event really honed in on that. And I actually ended up signing up for a new Twitter account under my real name, registering for the event, going, leaving, and then tweeting about it from Broadway Girl NYC. And people were like, she was here? How did that happen? How did she do that? And I was making specific references to the hors d'oeuvres that I'd had right. and the color of the shirt that the star of the of Rock of Ages who visited was wearing. And suddenly there was this air of mystery. And I realized I'm going to have to be careful about keeping Laura Haywood and Broadway Girl separate so that people who are trying to find out can't find out. And did people start reaching out to you to try to get you to tweet about them? It was PR companies that started, and that was like the next wave of knowing I really had something. Um, shortly after that, I I connected with the editor-in-chief of Broadway World, and he said, you know, would you ever want to write anything long form? Again, I know your blog has kind of gone by the wayside. Right. And I said, yes, I, I had a meeting with him in person, swore him to secrecy, mm -hmm. and we agreed that I would write a weekly column, sort of a day in the life of a Broadway fan within the Broadway Broadway Girl NYC voice. So he started getting calls from people saying, you know, can you ask her to – sometimes there would be a piece of information that a PR company didn't want to press release, but they wanted it leaked. And I did sometimes have – insidery kind of information, although I was very careful about how I got it. I never, ever, ever compromised information that I got through work. I was very conscious of the fact that nothing is a secret forever and that I could stand to ruin a lot of relationships if I used my connections at Sirius for ill. Right. Especially things Not like... Not for good. That's right. That's right. So did you feel like a superhero? Kind of. Yeah, I, I, it was sort of like I never really watched the show, but I was aware of Hannah Montana. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she she do you know Hannah Montana? I'm sorry. Do I know? Do you want me to sing the theme song yeah. for you right yeah. now? I mean, you I, got the best of both worlds. Yes. Yes. So yes. she wasn't exactly a superhero, but she had like her ordinary. She had her life. wig and not her wig. That's right. And yeah. so I had my avatar and my real life. And. I very consciously separated those things and was able to channel this pure joy for all things Broadway uh, One Direction and maintain a really professional life uh, at SiriusXM. I'd gone from being a host on the Maxim channel to being a producer for various shows on other talk channels to ultimately being director of talent and industry relations, which is basically a fancy name for one of the head talent bookers. So I was working with... Uh, comedians, celebrity chefs, movie stars, authors, politicians, um, and ultimately Broadway actors. And it was at that point the guy who was handling Broadway left for another job and they said, Laura, you're always at Broadway shows. Why don't you take, take over this realm? So suddenly my professional life, which had been so separate from Broadway, was all up in Broadway. And that was when I, I had to 
I had to stop writing the column for Broadway World because I couldn't tell any of my good stories because sure. they would have given away who I was. Yeah. And that was when I had to start writing Broadway Girl as if she was further outside by a long shot of the industry that I was actually very much inside. Meaning what? Like how would you manipulate a tweet to express what you just said? A perfect example is Cheyenne Jackson came in for an interview uh, I want to say maybe he was promoting Finian's Rainbow. And in the elevator, I was like, how are you? You know, I'd, I'd gotten to know him over several visits. And he said, oh, I'm so good. I just did the craziest project. I did this reading for a musical about Mormonism that's being written by the South Park creators. And I was like, what? What is that? And I thought, oh, that's so juicy. Yeah, yeah. Nobody had heard about it. Sure. And, um, you know, it was like a table read. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but I thought, well, Broadway Girl didn't isn't in yeah, this elevator. She cannot with us, write so, about Book yeah. of Mormon right no, now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. I walked Cheyenne Jackson uh, into the studio. He was doing three interviews that day, and my job was to stick with him, make sure he signed all the paperwork, ha- was in each studio on time, had water and coffee, etc. Um, and so, much I st- like I did for you today, exactly. Uh, and I stood with him in the studio while he was doing an interview on the Frank DeCaro show, and. He mentioned on a live mic about the Book of Mormon. And I went, well, Broadway Girl could be listening to this sure. right now. Yeah. And so as soon it was as soon as it was on a live mic, I knew Broadway Girl suddenly had access. As it happened, I was standing in the room, but I waited until he had taken the responsibility to put the information out yeah, there. Not on and you. then I ran with it. Yeah. And so I was like, Did you guys are you guys listening to the Frank DeCaro show? Cheyenne Jackson just said there's gonna be a Mormon musical. And was it a coincidence that I was listening? Not really. But I didn't break that cone of silence, so to speak. I think you said something about if I see a show that feels like it has a kind of anti-feminist message, Mm. perhaps, what I would tweet is, who's got some great ideas about a feminist show I should go see right now? Right? Like somehow taking this thing that was slightly disappointing for you and putting something out in the world that's kind of building things up. Yeah, exactly. I have found that it is the most satisfying thing in the world to exercise the muscle of looking for something good in everything. I never want to say anything bad about something that people have put so much blood, sweat, and tears into creating, especially because so many of them are people I love. And if I don't actually know them in person, I know someone who knows them. That's not the only reason, though. Um, I, I have learned from experience that when I put positivity out, it makes me feel better about myself. Um, it makes me feel like, like no matter how hard I love you or a show or, or someone else across the room, they can't actually feel that unless I, you know, if I tell them they can. But the real feeling of loving someone or something is within our own body. I had a very, very difficult time in high school. In my Tori Amos fandom uh, stage, uh, I found her and her music and the other sort of Rage Against the Machine, Nine Inch Nails type music um, because I was deeply, deeply depressed. And I, it was clinical. And I think that it was and could have been fatal. And if I hadn't gotten the treatment that I got, I might not have made it past junior year. Uh, and that's not something I talk openly about a lot, although I'm starting to because I'm, I get messages from a lot of young people, especially women, but some men, too, who are struggling and who are like, my life will never be as happy as yours is. And I would have definitely said that 20 years ago. Uh, and now I, I like practiced. Joy is something you can practice. 
What are some of the touchstones for you that you can share? I think that the biggest touchstone was was that I had a family that never gave up on me. And um, they they kept saying, I love you, uh, verbally and non-verbally, even when I was impossible to live with. Uh, and that's, that's the, I think, the thing that ultimately got me through. But in terms of, of touchstones, I mean, the biggest is just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Like, don't worry about how you're going to get across the room. Worry about how you're going to put your left foot down mm-hmm. and transfer your weight. And once you're there, you can think about how you're going to get your right foot to move. But don't worry about it beyond that. And I I keep coming back. You know, everybody has a few lines in Hamilton that that sort of What's are the Hamilton? stories. Of is, that, is that a show? <laughs> Hamilton. Um, one of the ones for me is just stay alive. It'll be enough. And that's the line that I I whisper back to my 15, 16, 17-year-old self. Because the fact is, the work gets done when you show up. And sometimes the idea of the work, whatever that means to you, whether it's actual homework, actual work, um, whether it's building relationships or finding your strength, whatever the work is, it gets done if you show up. But if you think too much about how much work there is to get done, you can never get out of bed. Do you know how many people say to me, like, I wish I had your life and I want to go, well, you have to live through some pretty tough stuff to get here. But I've already claimed this one and you have the capacity to create the you version of what I'm doing now and do something cooler than what I'm doing. I want to know how the thing happened where you did this TED Talk that no one is going to see that you can redo (laughs) right now. It all came to a head with an off-Broadway musical called Found that is based on a magazine started by a guy that I've known for years named Davey Rothbart. It's about... um, It's basically a collection of found notes, letters, lyrics, photographs that Davey and his friends found on the ground, taped together, photocopied, and started handing out at bars. And then it became an actual magazine and turned into a little like a cult phenomenon, people mailing things in from all over the world. Uh, A producer in New York got a hold of Found and thought that's going to be a great musical. I don't know how, but she arranged to have the rights to it. And it sat on her desk for a while. Meanwhile, there's an organization that I've been involved with for about a decade, basically since I got to New York, called Story Pirates. The best. That is like the happiest thing in my life. In short, it's a nonprofit arts education group that is educators, musicians, actors, comedians who go into low-income elementary schools and work with kids to write original stories. And then a professional theater company turns those stories into original sketch comedy and songs. Uh, sort of Saturday Night Live meets Monty Python meets Sesame Street. Um, and Which the public can go see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At the Drama Bookshop yeah. every Saturday. Storypirates.org is the website. Thanks for letting me get the plug Are in. Are you kidding? Um, I'm almost always there. So if you're going, send me a tweet. Let me know and I'll go and, you know, hang out with you. Uh, it, me? <laughs> Oh, well, personally? I mean, you, oh, my you, you and I will be waking up together every morning. So you'll, you and I will know where I'm we're going to be. I'm getting used to it. That's where I'm going to be every Saturday. Okay, um, keep going. So uh, at some point, this producer saw Story Pirates and thought, oh, the way that they adapt, a, you know, 10 word story f- from a kid, they could adapt a 10 word found item. And because I was friends with Davey and was on the board of directors of Story Pirates and the first off-Broadway production of Found, which had been a workshop since 2009, in 2014, the Atlantic Theater, which is right near where I live, uh, was putting it up 
for the first time as an off-Broadway show. And there was like a weird glitch in their social media. They had someone doing it who was posting things to Facebook that would then, through some program, through some app, get reposted on Twitter. But they were being posted in a garbled way. And the person they had doing it wasn't familiar with Twitter. And so I was still anonymous at this time. I knew Laura Haywood knew the Found the Musical team, but a lot of them didn't know that about my Broadway girl stuff. So they were like, they w- it wouldn't have occurred to them that this radio talent booker knew anything about social media at all. But because of Story Pirates and because they had been around when I first launched Broadway Girl before I bothered to really keep it that much of a secret because I didn't know anyone cared, I was able to go to some Story Pirates and say, somehow get me that Twitter account password and let me start running it. And they made the arrangement so that I could simultaneously, while anonymous, run the found the musical Twitter account. It happened to be right around this time, right around the Broadway flea market. And I knew that the flea market would be the ultimate marketing tool for found the musical because it combined it combined people who loved musical theater and loved the treasure hunt. And so I created this found at the flea hashtag contest thing, built the found the musical uh, Twitter feed following from 100 to over 1,000 in under a month. And on closing night, the producers handed me a check and said, we couldn't not pay you for this great work. And we wish we could hire you to do all of our work, like to do this for all of our shows. But we like you have a full time job and it's not like you're going to quit that job. And I went, well, that's an idea. I then had my first paycheck from doing social media marketing. And because I was so ingrained in the fabric of that show and had been going to workshops for five years and knew it inside and out, had all these connections, it was just an easy transition. Transition, yeah. Um, so I decided what I thought was going to be uh, that I was going to leave, do a reveal, and launch a social media consultancy. It turned out I had no idea how many people would be interested in having Broadway Girl in the flesh show up at things. Right. And so I've turned into a personality who can actually go and represent the character with my real face and and become more of a broadcaster, going back to that broadcasting roots. Um, although I'm also writing and I'm, I appear at, I'm, I'm like giving lectures and I am doing some social media consulting with artists who want to know how to stay authentic without giving too much of themselves away, mm-hmm. which is way more fun for me than teaching people how to like maximize analytics. I have no interest in that. But if you want to know, should I post pictures of my kids or should I not? I can talk to you about that and talk you through how to make that decision. So that's part of my job that I love. And so you do the TED Talk. Yeah. So I had been going to TEDx Broadway for a few years as a member of the media. And I called the publicist and she was like, oh, are you calling to get a press pass again this year? And I said, well, I definitely want to be there. But this is why I was still working at Sirius. But I have this idea. I'm planning on leaving at the leaving my job at the end of the year. And I am going to I'm ready to make a reveal. And I thought this might be a great place to do it. And she was like, oh, wow. Well, I don't have any say over who gets right, curating. Yeah. The but let me bring this idea. You know, can I is it OK if I because I had had to swear her, swear her to secrecy sure. in order to do this. But I asked her to sp- send the message along. And I had a bunch of sort of phone interviews with the creators of the event. And they ultimately said, yeah, we'd like to do this. But we didn't even announce it until a few days before because there were enough people out there and it wouldn't have been that hard like for a private investigator they would have found me out like that if you looked at the 
um, location stamps on my photos or the the eight, the IP addresses of where I was tweeting from. I mean, it would have been easy right. to find out in a heartbeat. Right. So we were afraid somebody might scoop it. Yeah. But nobody did. And the reception was 100% positive. There were so many people who knew both Laura Haywood and Broadway Girl had separate relationships. And I was afraid that some of them might feel like I duped them or that I had left them out somehow right, and, and have their feelings. Right, or being duplicitous. Yeah. Yeah. The fact is, though, Broadway Girl had never said anything bad about anybody. So nobody could, and luckily nobody did, feel hurt, as far as I know. So when I said to you earlier that maybe down the line there will be some backlash that I experience in the world of social media, mm-hmm. I'm just not in it enough yet to to maybe even have that happen. I feel like you have something to say about that. Mm-hmm. Tell me, like when I say that to you, what comes to mind? When you The idea of backlash on social media, first of all, you're right, it is unavoidable. Anytime you express an opinion on something, you're inviting debate. Um, I have found that really the only backlash that I have had is from people who don't understand my backstory and are like, you know, you think you're better than all the other fans. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I I don't. Like, the idea is that I am just a fan. I mean, there isn't actually a just. I'm a fan. You're a fan. I don't care who's seen more shows or what. Like, come give me a hug. We're in this family, you know. Do they feel like you're getting access that they're not getting? I think so. And, I, you know, I remember that, too. Like, I remember even, you know, I talked about Tori Amos. I wrote Mm -hmm. her a fan letter that I kept a copy of. And it and this you've was, always been so organized. Oh, I don't know about that, <laughs> but um, but I definitely have boxes and boxes of pieces of writing that I've uh-huh. done. They're not very well organized, but I still have them. Um, but I wrote this what I thought at the time was a gushing fan letter to her, but it was I, there's a line in it where I said maybe if I could play the piano too, I'd have my own cult. That is not something you say that to somebody not, you love, right, right? But I just like. I wanted to be friends with her. I wanted to be close to her. And I didn't understand why she should get credit for for things that also felt like they were coming out of my heart. And I think that there was probably because a lot of... Because she was writing what you were feeling? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I thought... But yeah, I thought that thought too. And you're getting all the credits. Right. And so I can identify with people that feel jealous of the connections that I have because especially if I tweet something that is similar to something that they thought or that they if I say something that is so relatable that they feel like they actually were the one that said it and yet I'm getting to go hang out backstage with Betsy Wolf at Waitress that doesn't feel fair mm-hmm. so and I will sometimes when I get that kind of energy I I tell them the story like about yeah I get that that's if like you saw your heart reflected and sometimes it's just the acknowledgement they need the other time that i've gotten backlash is when i've gotten political and that i go in like i grit my teeth and i bear it you know like i posted a lot about the public theater and hashtag we are one public when the production uh got you know funding pulled from right some organizations that um you know i went and canceled my bank of america checking account because they pulled funding from, uh, you know, from the, pu- the public theater. Yeah. And so um, and I got a lot of very ugly, very profanity laden tweets from anonymous, speaking of anonymous, like a different kind of anonymous Twitter user. And you know what? 
it would be easy to say, Ugh, just like let it roll off your back. It still hurts. It still hurts when some anonymous person who's like a troll, a person who's designed to make you feel bad, can still make you feel bad. Yeah. But the more I reacted with positivity, no matter what, that the more positive I felt about myself. And do you ever, I promise this has a point, do you ever go into your sent email and read an email you've already sent from the point of view of the person you sent it to? Yeah, not enough, but yes. So after I've sent an email, I almost always go and read it again and put myself into the mind space of the person who's receiving it. Do you ever think of doing that before you send it? I do it before I send it. That's what you mean. You don't mean after the fact. You mean like I do it the before draft. I send it. Yeah. No, no, no. I do it before I send it. And then after I send it, I imagine that I'm the person receiving it. And I open it and I read it again as them. And sometimes I have like a different feeling about it. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you don't do this. It's just me. Not In enough. any case, yeah. I, I also have the ability to listen to myself as a radio host and be a member of the audience and be listening as someone who didn't actually create that thing. This is the same kind of idea. When I tweet something, I am both the broadcaster and the audience. So when there's something I need to hear, I make sure to post it so someone is saying it in a public place where I can read it. And when I read a tweet, it feels like an authority figure has said it because it's on an official website. Right. And I can go and be like, oh, be kind to yourself today. Yes, this authority called Twitter has told me to be kind to myself today. And it's a lot easier to listen to an authority figure than it is to myself because, you know, way down deep, I still have a lot of insecurities. And if I'm like, I need to be kind to myself today, it's like, what do you know? But if it's on a website, if it's on even my if you phone, put it there even yourself. if I put it there, yeah. I'm able to consume it as the audience. And I'm like, yeah, I should be kind to myself today. And that's a really good tool for me. That's really interesting. There's no one who will be surprised to hear it. Like that whole thing, this whole world, trying to understand it is so foreign to me. It was never a part of what I did. As an actor, I didn't come up during the age of using social media to promote yourself or what you were working on or as a tool to communicate with people that you care about, even as a non-promotional tool, just as a communication tool. And so for me, it's been really interesting to enter this world that has existed without me for a long time. And I'm, and I'm joining these, this planet, basically. And I don't know where it's going. I know that for me, part of what I love about doing this podcast is that I'm in a room with another human being and nothing replaces that mm-hmm. for me. I love ideas. I love big ideas and small ideas. I love the creativity of trying to put a big idea into just a few characters. I think it's a really interesting challenge to find ways to express yourself sparsely that still have meaning attached to them. And that's the part of Twitter that's kind of a fun thing for me. It's mm-hmm. a fun puzzle. But at the end of the day, for me, I love feeling like I'm a part of a community and there are ways in which social media allows my community to grow Mm -hmm. in all of these beautiful ways. But I also really need to be next to someone to really have a relationship with them and really get to not just hear their ideas, but see their eyes and also to look at them. You know, when Alan Alda was on the show, he talked so much and so kind of articulately about how when you really look at someone when you're talking to them and how you really look at someone when they're you're listening to them changes 
everything about the conversation because mm-hmm. it's so much more than the words. It's about these two human beings having an experience with each other. And so for me, I'm just trying to figure out how to live authentically in this world where there's very little person to person in the same space and so much of us kind of communicating through these, you know, through technology. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom still doesn't know how to text. And I finally said to her the other day when she was kind of feeling bad about it, I was like, oh my God, mom, because of that, I call you every day. Mm -hmm. I said, I promise you, if you knew how to text, we'd barely hear each other's voices because there are a million reasons why we don't have time to do it. And they're all legit. So I guess what I want to say is even though we met in this kind of bizarre internet universe, it is such a thrill all kidding aside, to sit in a room with you and really get to feel that positivity that you talk about, it is contagious and it is exciting. It's an honor for me to be here. And, you know, you're so right about being in the same room with someone. um, And I feel really, really lucky to be here with you. And like, I feel like I have known you for a lot longer than I have because of listening to the podcast, but like we're getting to know each other. And when you're in a room with somebody, sometimes it just works. So anyway, Laura Haywood, thank you for being here today. And until next time. It's a pleasure. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc.